Welcome to Art of the Float, where float centers thrive. This is our weekly podcast where we share our stories of starting and running our float centers, where we love it as you join us as we work together to raise our education level on building, marketing, and running our float centers. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the social media outlets at Art of the Float, and of course, artofthefloat.com to find show notes, links, pictures from every episode, all that good stuff. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dylan. I own the float shop with my wife, Sandra Calm, in Portland, Oregon. I'm joined with Amy of Float Nashville, and Engineer Brian is back there as well. And I'm so excited to introduce our guest tonight. We'll bring him on in just a little bit, but we have Dr. Justin Feinstein. He has his latest study published, and we're going to talk about what's in that study and what it means for our industry. Very excited to talk to Justin of the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. But we'll get to that in a little bit. First, I do want to thank Jeanette Fassenden for supporting us on Patreon. A $10 donation or more gets you a set of photos every month from us, and it also just helps support this podcast and put some wind in our sails. So thank you, everybody who is supporting us. We appreciate it so much. On Patreon, there is a survey to fill out on those photos. So go to patreon.com forward slash art of the float if you do want to help support us or learn, learn more about that. Also, go to floatconference.com because you want to get tickets for the conference coming up August 18th and 19th. It's coming up here. It's a big deal. I'm going to be there. I think Justin's going to be there. Mm, It just gets better year after year. It's such an event. Whether you're there to learn, um, and by the way, show up early, 16th and 17th. Do sign up for it early, but whether it's about the construction, whether it's inspiration, whether it's the networking part and building bonds and friends that you're going to have for the rest of your float career, which ideally, at least for me, is for a lifetime, then do come to the float conferences. It's an amazing experience. Floatconference.com, again, is where you want to go to learn more, check out past videos, all that good stuff. Again, it's August 18th and 19th, and there's also the uh, workshop on the 16th and 17th if you want to uh, uh, get information on starting your float center. Amy, how are you doing tonight? I am doing just fine, thank yeah. you. As good oh. as one could be as they're starting a, a new float center. Okay, okay. So like every year, every week we check in, and yes. uh, is it a thumbs up or is it a thumbs down this week? We got to start having so, a system. I know, seriously, right? Uh, we just have a, a weekly rating. Uh, yes. Actually, when we talked last week, I was on the precipice of getting a what they call temporary, you know, which is a temporary use and occupancy permit, so that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could actually open part of our float center. So for those of you who don't know, I'm moving into a 5,800-square-foot building, and half of it is a float center, half of it is going to be our new kombucha tap room. So our goal was, even if we can't get the float center done, because we are behind schedule, we would at least be able to get this tap room open and get some uh, money generated. And Coates had told us, from the beginning, from day one, you can get a temporary UNO while you finish the rest of it, not a problem. So when we talked last, the next day, four of our inspectors were supposed to come, and three of them showed up and passed half of our building. Congrats. And the fourth, thank you. Yes, it was, it was easy. I was like, every time, I, every time somebody came in and passed us, I'd get a phone call. It's like, yes, okay, we're so nice, close. Cool. Got it. But then the fourth one didn't show. Mm. And when they called him, he said, well, I'm not coming in to only inspect part of your building. I can't do that. I'm like, oh, no, you're, you're mistaken. Um, codes people, <laughs> they told us it'd be fine. Just come on over. No, no, it's never that easy. Uh, so he went to Codes to talk to them, and oh, wow. they decided to deny us a temporary UNO because he didn't want to 
He didn't want to uh, just inspect half the building. So... <laughs> where does that leave you? I mean, how frustrating. But yeah. where does that leave you? What's the next step then? It uh, leaves us with, we have to complete the entire building before we can get a use and occupancy. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's really frustrating. And I know that I'm not alone in this, but when you have no, you, you can't control inspectors, you can't right. control the codes people, you can't control your subcontractors, there's, there's no sense. You just have to sit back and watch this happen. Um, so this weekend, I'm like, I have to do something. I understand it won't get me any closer, but I have to feel like I'm doing something to get us closer to our goal. So we went in and we actually painted our tap room this weekend. Um, nice. <laughs> cleaned it. Uh, cleaned the bathroom associated with it. We got that ready to paint. But we did something, which... Yeah. Kind of makes you feel, I guess, a little, a little bit good. better. You're not going to do a kombucha speakeasy <laughs> style. Uh, you know, the speakers, the police show up. It all spins back to construction. No more paint on the walls. No one will ever know. know, right? No one will ever know. <laughs> we'll have a password at the door. It'll be so great. So this was this yeah. financially. This was important for you to be open. Yes, very, very important. We are now past as. Like y'all didn't know this, right? We are, of course, past the time that we were supposed to be open, going on two months past that point. Um, and, you know, there's been some other issues popping up. So it's super, super important. That said, we're pushing super hard to get what we, the bare minimum to get that temp, that, that, not the temporary UNO, but our, our use and occupancy permit. Okay. So, our electrician is running around trying to finish things up. We're having, we had our doors hung today. Our doors were being hung, which we have so many doors in that place. Including your float rooms? Including our float rooms. Yay, congrats. So yeah. that's yeah. awesome. Uh, but w the electrician came to Mark. Mark was there today, and he said, you know, uh, right, uh, where are the lights to hang the, the track lighting? Mark's like, well, that was supposed to be ordered. A general contractor is supposed to get that. He's like, no, there's no lights around here. Oh, Found out the general contractor didn't order the lights. And they were ready. To, well, they're not ready to hang them yet, but they will be in the next day or two. So the general contractor was just going to order them now, which is like, you know, a few weeks away. No, 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 no. So I'm running around today buying lights. Told that I was going to oh. say. <laughs> like, Home Depot what? That's what I did. I'm like, yeah, what? They don't, they, I don't care. I don't even give a crap if they match at this point. Yeah. I'm like, look, there's track lights. Let's That's do inspection. it. Let's go. We gotta go. I'll figure it out later. Uh, so it's it's <laughs> it's yeah. like this mad race. Nobody's sleeping. Uh, we're making things. So we we see the finish line, but we're doing things like, oh, I better make a hair appointment because you know, you know. When we open, when we finally get that tap room open, there's no time for haircuts. No, we're gonna be <laughs> right. living. You just take your last shower too. There's yeah. a lot of laughs right there. <laughs> right. No time for a lot of things. <laughs> no time for haircuts. No time for pedicures. Whatever. So I'm I'm trying to shove it all in this week. Doctor's appointments for the rest of the year. I'm like I'm trying <laughs> totally. to get them all in. That's so uh, true. That is but so it's, those doors open. That's just giving yeah. birth to your baby, and then you gotta take yeah. care of it. That's right. I, I, this is not my first time at the rodeo. I know this time. I know what to do. I mean, that is so funny. I didn't see the dentist for years after we opened. <laughs> that is so true. Wow. Uh, smart. So, yeah. That's Amy. That's the Amy Grimes method. That is it's so smart, Amy. So true. <laughs> so hopefully your week was not as insane or crazy 
No, other than just some things where you kind of get used to the insane and crazy, I guess. Um, Two LMTs, two long-term LMTs putting in notice and also some yoga stuff coming up of of a new new, uh, renter of the yoga space putting in notice. And you just get used to riding this wave, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just... um, Sometimes you catch your shoulders ending up by your ears, but overall, you you do kind of get used to it. This is the ebb and flow of it. Uh, yeah. Although I did tell Sandra today, actually, I was like, you know, there's an appeal to having a nine to five and getting a paycheck. You know, there is an appeal to that um, lack of risk or just not knowing if, if you're going to be able to pay rent or, you know, if, if mm. your income versus outgoing is going to be equal or not. That's it's just a different lifestyle that we've chosen, and uh, you know, I'm not going back to a nine to nine to five anytime yeah. soon. <laughs> but but uh, it it does occur to you the um, the attractive attractiveness mm. of it. Yeah. Beyond that, I was really excited to go to Dana Highfield's open house uh, for her float <gasps> center, Float North, which wasn't wasn't a grand opening celebration. It was breaking ground, and technically, mm. they've already. Um, you know, put up some walls and stuff like that, but it was really cool. We have an episode with Dana. Maybe Brian, you could find what that episode number is for quick yep. reference if you want to hear Dana's story. But she's opening up a float center here in Portland, and it has been a long process, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, getting the loans and everything has been a very long process, and it's finally happening. I couldn't be happier for her. It is um, and a beautiful, amazing space, and it was so much fun because, well, first of all, I walk in and I've, I've seen the blueprints already, the designs, and so it was just amazing to walk into the space and already know exactly what this place is going to look like. I mean, of course, Mm -hmm. I forgot a few things, but just like the general uh, gestalt of the place, like I I got it, you know, and then looked, looked down at the ground and saw uh, in, in a permanent marker paint, uh, the double walls, you know, where the oh. double studs were going to go. It's like, yes, that's right. Excellent. It's all it's all already here. It just needs to come out of the ground. So <laughs> that was just so much fun. I, it's a beautiful space. I wish her the best. And and um, it's funny hearing you with all your construction woes because I know Dana listens to the show and she, she knows to anticipate this. It's yep. all coming around yep. the corner for her too. And it's going to be a beast. And I think Portland tends to be a little bit easier um, than, than where you're at, Amy. Um <laughs> <laughs> on their small businesses, but but it happens to everybody. Yeah. So yeah. It, yeah, it's just part of it. It's yeah, exactly. It's it's a rite of passage. You just have to look at it as a rite of passage. No matter where you are, good luck on yeah. hitting your grand opening date. You know, yeah. <laughs> like Never that's happens. one thing. Like if you listen to the show, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Uh, Big congrats to Dana. Yeah, so excited to see see her making progress on this, and can't wait to have her on once once she opens. Uh, if well, if she has time for that. Um, if, we'll if do you the podcast wanna... from her studio. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll drive across the river and, and set up some microphones for. Her. Yeah, there we go. Uh, if you if you did want to catch that episode, that's episode one hundred and two, uh, and we'll link that in the show notes for anyone who wants to give it a listen. Thanks, Brad. Beyond that, just a little little businessy thing of just it was Valentine's Day and we decided mm-hmm. to push off our membership. I don't know if you want to call it membership drive, but membership push, uh, and just do a Valentine's uh, buy one get one at half off. Uh, we put it in an email blast and on social media. We have a, spending a couple dollars a day on boosting that. If you're a member, uh, you can bring in somebody for free instead of uh, $39. So just on a little little business side of things, that's that's what we're doing right now. Not a big push and uh, no special packages of roses and chocolates and all that stuff. Although I think we are giving out chocolates uh, to our people, but that's I think we do that anyway, so... You have amazing chocolate in Portland. You better be giving out chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I ordered chocolate from Portland. Y'all have That's great right. chocolate. We do. 
Feels yeah, I have to, I have to here, not yeah. look at it and just keep it in my periphery when I come into the office, to the <laughs> shop because it's so so yummy. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I want to bring Justin on here in just a minute. First, I want to thank Float Fuel for supporting the show. Uh, Float Fuel is the company that you want to go to if you want to make sure that that first batch of water that you're making doesn't turn brown, that it doesn't have all those particulates in it that make that terrible, terrible, uh, just absolute heart palpitating scene when you think that you're going to open your business and then um, you literally can't show anybody the water because it looks so gross. Safe to float in, absolutely disgusting to look at. So if you want to avoid that, you want to go through Float Fuel and use the promo code AOTF when you order to get 15% off. I believe uh, that brings the price down to 57 cents a pound. Float Fuel, better salt for a better float. And you just want to go to the sidebar on artofthefloat.com to find their website, and you'll see the uh, Float Fuel. Oh, that's right. Also at floatfuel.com now as well. Cool. Justin, welcome to the show. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Well, I think, Amy, how are you doing? <laughs> how do you answer that question? <laughs> I, I know I'm doing fantastic and so happy that you're here. I'm, yeah. s- I'm excited for tonight. I have to admit, all day while I was mm. out rushing around, I have been looking forward to hearing about what you're going to talk about tonight. Because yeah. I'm, I'm excited. You make a difference. You help us show the world that floating makes a difference. So yes. glad you're here. Yeah, that's so true. Um, you know, in fact, let's, let's back it up a little bit. And for those who don't know who Justin is, the, the float hero, <laughs> Justin <laughs> Feinstein, uh, who, who is Dr. Justin Feinstein? Who is he? <laughs> who is he? Dot, dot, dot. Who is this mysterious man everyone's talking about? So, you know, for those who don't know me, my background is, is actually in clinical neuropsychology and spent a lot of time, actually, the past two decades really trying to study the brain and how the brain creates and generates our experience of anxiety. For a long time, I've, I've really been focused on this mission of trying to find new ways of helping people who are suffering from anxiety. For many years, actually, I had never heard of floating. It was not on my radar screen, but it wasn't until about five or so years ago where it finally uh, sort of stumbled into my life while I was working at Caltech as a researcher. And one of the, the people in the laboratory had tried floating and turned me on to it. And ever since then, I've really been looking at floating as a research tool to try to better understand how it affects the brain, how it affects the body, but more importantly, how it could actually help people who are suffering from anxiety. And so it's it's exciting to be on the show tonight because at long last, after hmm. a long five-year journey, in fact, uh, we finally have data to show that this is indeed helpful. And it was, a you know, the culmination of a lot of hard work, and there was a certain degree of risk that went into it because this is really the first study of its kind in this target population of people with legitimate full-blown anxiety disorders. Mm-hmm. And so for us, this was um, sort of the first stage. I wouldn't call this the, the end. This is really just the beginning. But it was a very important beginning because we needed the proof of principle that A, this is safe, and B, it's effective. And I think both of those we were able to check off with this first paper. Well, based on my reading of it, I would say yes to, to a, an incredible degree. In fact, I, I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we're going to go through a lot of this paper. 
but um, the results are phenomenal. Um, I mean, I know it's a smaller sample size and there are a lot of caveats that you might bring up about it, but when we get to that, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, you know, the number of people who experienced positive effects versus those who didn't uh, and, and what that means going forward. Um, there's something that we should, before we get too, too deep in this, uh, maybe we'll also back up and talk about our last episode where um, you came on the show and talked about bringing, uh, uh, excuse me, hiring for a lab assistant position at LIBOR. And I don't think you have found anybody for that. Uh, but I also believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you want somebody from within the industry. And I've met several of your previous lab assistants, and they're awesome. <laughs> they, I, I don't envy them for how much they have to balance and keep track of. Uh, it's a lot. But I think you're also looking for somebody who has a passion for floating and really is motivated by the, the float itself. Is that right? Or am I putting words in your mouth? It's, it's certainly something that's been on my radar screen. It, it would be helpful to have someone help me manage the day-to-day -day operations of the whole clinic and how to uh, sort of maintain and care for the float pools. Mm -hmm. And so that's nice to have somebody who already has that experience and background, who already knows how to introduce a float to a novel uh, floater, mm -hmm. first-time floater. And... You know, on top of it, we're, we're really trying to find somebody who wants to help us take this research to the next level. You know, in this initial publication, this was, like I said, a proof of principle. We, we found a meaningful clinical effect. But if we're ever going to get this to the next level and get it really taken seriously by Western medicine, we need to do larger scale clinical trials. And the idea of this position is they would help me coordinate and manage those clinical trials. And so the idea of this is we're looking for someone who, who's in it for the long haul, who is really invested in uh, trying to put floating to a legitimate test. And it's going to take, you know, quite a few years to accomplish the, the clinical trials that I'm foreseeing here. So... We're, we're, we're definitely looking for somebody who's, who's willing to move out to Tulsa, Oklahoma and uh, devote their life to this mission. And so obviously, uh, this isn't something for somebody to take lightly. Mm -hmm. But we do have you know, all of the requirements for this position listed on our website. And I think you guys might be able to even put a link up to that so people could see exactly who we're looking for. At that. Yeah, if you go to our uh, show notes page, we'll have a link for that on there. And uh, my guess is you're probably not going to get a float center owner uh, applying because we've, we've got a lot on our plates. Believe me, Sandra and I talked about it, but, <laughs> but uh, this might be something you talk to your employees about, which might be a difficult conversation because you don't want to give up the great employees. But I think a lot of what we do is provide space for growth with our float centers and, and the growth might be for them to leave our business and, and go to LIBOR. So I'll just uh, put that out there to maybe share this concept or share the link uh, with, your, with your employees, or at least the ones that you think might be a great fit. That's right. And, and for those who don't know, LIBOR uh, is, is short for Laureate Institute for Brain Research. And it's really a unique institute in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It, it, it has some of the um, most interesting people you're going to find. They brought, basically brought researchers and scientists from all over the world to move to this area uh, somewhat in the middle of nowhere. I never foresaw myself living in Oklahoma uh, prior to this this endeavor. And 
But what's what's fascinating is everyone's there for the same reason. And the mission of the Institute mm. is really to think outside the box, use the state of the art knowledge that we have with regard to neuroscience and try to come up with new treatments for mental illness. And so that's one of the nice parts of being there is everyone has that mission, whether they're doing uh, advanced brain imaging or creating new types of treatments. It doesn't matter. We're all trying to, to help people get better. Are you guys, I don't, I don't know how to put this exactly, but are, are you, do you fit in with the rest of the research company or are you guys out there in left field because you're looking at things from a different angle? Is it more difficult to communicate with the rest of the community? You know, it, 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 it's not. I think everyone there understands that, you know, the currently available treatments for a lot of the different types of mental illness out there are inadequate. They're not helping everybody. Um, oftentimes, uh, the majority of people are not getting better on these treatments. A lot of the treatments come with a whole panoply of side effects. And so I think everybody who works at, at LIBOR really understands that it's, it's incumbent upon us to really try to find the next best treatments. And hopefully with less side effects, hopefully with a greater amount of effectiveness for a greater amount of people. And that mission is always on our mind every day we go into work. And I think floating in many ways fits that mission perfectly. All right. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's go and start diving in. Uh, do you want to talk about the abstract first and just give, give the overall uh, basics of, of this? Absolutely. So the study uh, came out about a week or two ago. Congrats again, by the way. Congratulations. I don't know. Did we say it yet? Uh, this is, like you Thanks. said, five years of work and, and I'm sure much, much more time before that as well leading up to this. Congratulations. Thank you, guys. Yeah, it was a lot of work. You know, this is the first of many papers. We have a, a number of other papers in, in various stages of the pipeline, but it's nice to see it out and in print. It, it was published in a peer-reviewed journal by the name of PLOS One, and PLOS is short for Public Library of Science. So this is going to be um, sort of in the archives for perpetuity, and it's nice to have it there. So even a hundred years from now, if somebody wanted to to look this up, it would be there and available online. And, and who who does read this? It's not on my queue. It doesn't show up in my newsfeed. So who who is reading this? Yeah. So basically, uh, this is going to be indexed and archived in all of the major research um, databases. So uh, PubMed, Google Scholar. You're going to be able to to find this paper, and it's has you know several keywords that will always be associated with it, including flotation rest, and it's really meant for scientists. And most of who's re read it so far have been scientists. I've been getting a lot of great feedback from my colleagues who've never even heard of floating before, huh. and that's been interesting because I spent a lot of time in this paper just trying to explain what floating is and how everything is so calibrated. But on top of it, you know, PLOS One really has a mission to make science available to the general public. And that's one of the reasons why I went with this particular journal. That, that's a big part of the mission. A lot of research is funded by the, the taxpayer, right? Mm -hmm. And 
if research is being funded by the taxpayer, you would think that taxpayers should be able to see the final product. But a lot of journals don't make the articles freely available. It's very difficult because you have to pay to actually access it or be part of a university where they pay. Mm -hmm. Whereas PLOS One is open access. So you could share this with everybody. You could access it yourself. And it's really meant to increase the conversation, the general conversation, not just among scientists, but the general public as well. Okay. That's very exciting. Just the, what an interesting way to, to approach that, just for free access for everybody to be able to get to this. That's very cool. That's very exciting. <laughs> uh, so, so the abstract, the, the overall idea. Yeah, so, you know, what we wanted to do is we wanted to start with the simplest type of clinical trial. You know, when you do clinical trial research in pharmaceuticals, they typically break it up into phases. So you have phase one, phase two, phase three, and then by the time you finish your phase three trials, usually the drug is getting ready to go to market. Hmm. So... You know, I would say this is a much earlier phase clinical trial. We're not up to a phase three trial yet. Mm -hmm. This was what you would call an open label clinical trial where everybody knows what uh, uh, intervention you'll be getting. So there's no blinding. Mm -hmm. Both the experimenter and the, the participant understand that they're getting flotation as their intervention. Um, eventually, you would move into what's called a randomized clinical trial or an RCT, and we actually have completed our first RCT, and that's that paper's under review right now. Oh wow! Okay. But the idea of an RCT is you actually include a control condition, and that control condition could be an active condition, it could be a non-active condition, it could be a placebo condition. It could be a treatment-as-usual condition. There's a lot of variations on that theme, but the important part is you have a set of inclusion and exclusion criteria, and anyone who meets that criteria is randomized into one of the two conditions, the active condition and the control condition. And that's a much more rigorous trial because you now have the effects of a control. And so in an open-label trial, you don't have the control piece of it. It's just literally one condition, and in this case it's floating, and a group of people who all understand that's what they're getting. And, and may I ask, I know it's not uh, germane to this specifically, but how do you do that with floating? How do you co convince somebody that they are doing something similar or having a float or, you know, it seems, seems pretty obvious whether you had the float experience or not. <laughs> it, it, it's very hard. In fact, any non-pharmaceutical -pharma trial it's extremely hard to come up with a perfect placebo condition. Sure. You know, when you have a sugar pill versus a real pill, the pills look exactly the same. You could say that this is the type of pill you're going to be getting, and so you have the same exact expectation uh, that goes into it, and so it's a lot more well-controlled. But with any sort of behavioral intervention, it's very hard to have the perfect control. So oftentimes what you end up doing is creating multiple types of controls. And at the end of the day, if you really want to, you know, prove that your intervention is, is working, what you oftentimes will see is an active control where you take an already validated treatment and that becomes your control condition. Okay. And we're moving towards that direction. We're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Is it okay to ask what that might be? 
Well, you know, you could take, for example, uh, if you're working with people who have anxiety, you could look at anti-anxiety medications. You could look at uh, uh, different types of psychotherapy that might help people with anxiety. So, or even, you know, active relaxation uh, 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 types of controls, like progressive muscle relaxation. So there's a lot of uh, uh, different types of controls you could think about in terms of an active control for floating. But there you would actually be comparing floating to treatments that have already been uh, well-validated and well-studied. That seems like a very big deal to be um, using floating versus comparing it directly with anti-anxiety medication. That just seems like a very big deal. Does that? It is a big deal. And you, you typically wouldn't go to that trial right away. You know, <laughs> you, it, it, you don't normally go to those more active clinical trials until you really feel strongly that you have a clear clinical effect. Okay. And we're getting there. Like I said, we're, we're not far away from our, our first set of active controls. But, you know, what I would say is you, you want to be uh, very cautious in that approach because there's different types of trials. They have a trial called a non-inferiority trial where literally all you're trying to show is that your new treatment is not inferior to a gold standard or proven treatment. Hmm. And so there, you're not trying to show that it's better. You're just trying to show that it's not worse. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of variations on that theme. So as you, as you get into the minutia of clinical trials, all I could say is it gets very dense, very nuanced. And you want to just be very cautious as well. So, you know, what I would say is we started with the simplest type of clinical trial you could start with. It's an open label trial. And you do that mostly because you want to first see that there is a, an effect to be had. And you also do that for other reasons, like you want to make sure that patients could tolerate it. You want to make sure that it's safe and it's not causing adverse events or making the symptoms worse instead of better. And, you know, for all those reasons, that's why we chose this as an open label trial, because there really wasn't a lot of precedent. Right to build off of with this first study. Yeah. And, and you did decide to float people with anxiety. That's right. It wasn't just, you know, the, the casual uh, person who's, you know, a little bit anxious like everybody in this world. Right. These are people who are clinically anxious. These are people who, because of their anxiety disorder, they've had significant impairment in, in their life. For example, a lot of the the patients that we were floating didn't have jobs. They were unemployed because their anxiety was too severe. Um, a lot of them had lost relationships or were incapable of even having a relationship. Mm. So, you know, in, in our study, we, we have a whole range of conditions and we could talk about that. But we had certain people who rarely ever left their house. That's how disabled they were. Mm -hmm. And we even had some people who were homeless. And so you realize that this isn't the garden variety type of anxiety that you're dealing with. This is the sort of anxiety that literally hijacks your life wow. and makes it difficult to function. And that's who we started with. We started with people who had moderate to severe anxiety. And we didn't just look at um, one particular type of anxiety disorder, but instead we looked at the entire spectrum of anxiety disorders. And this is important because... As I theoretically try to understand why floating would be working, it's become clear to me that <clears throat> I think that 
what it's doing is it's tapping into the very root of the circuitry within our brain that is generating the experience of anxiety. And so and if that's true, it shouldn't matter what type of anxiety disorder you suffer from. In other words, it doesn't matter what triggers your anxiety. There could be a million different reasons for it. But regardless of that fact, floating in my hypothesis should help reduce the anxiety, at least in the short term. Okay. And can you tell me a little bit about the T-1000 participant recruitment? I think that's interesting. That's right. So the study... uh, um, was recruiting from a database that we have at the Laureate Institute known as the T-1000 or the Tulsa 1000. This is a giant project where we're trying to recruit a thousand different patients from the local area who are treatment seeking and who suffer from various types of uh, mental illness. So we have people with different types of mood and anxiety disorders, We have people with various types of addiction. We have people with eating disorders. And essentially, the Tulsa 1000 brings them in and puts them through a 24-hour battery of different tests. We have brain scans. We have genetic testing. We have computerized testing. Um, It goes across almost uh, everything you could imagine. We put them through the ringer. But the whole reason for this is because... Psychiatry for a long time now has always been based off of the person's report. There's no blood test. There's no EKG. There's no biopsy that tells you that somebody has a mental illness. Mm. It's required that that person just tells you they have it. And based on the symptoms and the particular issues they're having, they get a diagnosis. But there's, you know, there's no science to that, right? And that's been a big issue in psychiatry compared to other medical disciplines. We don't have any objective tests. Mm -hmm. And part of the goal of the Tulsa 1000 then is to take this rich battery of tests across a huge data set of a thousand different people and then follow those people for a year or more and try to use those baseline tests to predict what type of mental illness you might have, the severity of the symptoms you might have, your prognosis a year or two into the future. Mm. And that would really start creating a science behind psychiatry. And and that's really the goal of the Tulsa 1000. So we had this access that was very unique to this database. And what we did is we came up with a set of very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria where we wanted to get participants who had moderate to severe anxiety. And we wanted to make sure that they didn't have any severe psychopathology that would make this unsafe for them. Uh, So, for example, we excluded people who may have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And it's not because we don't know if floating will work with that. We we Actually, we don't know. Um, But the real reason is because we wanted to make this first trial a little bit on the safer side Mm -hmm. because we're already dealing with people who have a lot of issues. And then we found a group of people who actually met our criteria, and we started calling them up and saying, hey, would you like to come in and try our new float study? And we didn't tell them much about it. What oh, we okay. did is we, we, we texted them a picture of our open float pool. And oh, I think that's a key part of this study. You have to recognize everyone floated in a, in a, a very spacious, eight-foot circular, uh, uh, round open pool. 
no enclosure whatsoever. And that was a key part of reducing the barrier to entry for these patients, many of whom have severe claustrophobia. That, that seems to go hand in hand with anxiety. Okay. And so of that group of people that we, we recruited from the Tulsa 1000, we actually found 50 different patients who were willing to come in and have a float. And this is unheard of, I would say, even in, in um, the literature. You, you rarely get a float study that has 50 patients who are actually floating. Mm-hmm. And it's also pretty rare in the anxiety disorder literature. Most of the studies looking at different people who have anxiety, clinical anxiety, are, you know, anywhere from a dozen to two dozen on average. Now, as you get into the larger clinical trials, you'll definitely get into studies that show hundreds of people. But most anxiety studies are smaller. And the reason is because most people with anxiety avoid everything. Totally, yeah. And so it's very difficult to get people with anxiety to try to do an unknown sort of research study. Yeah. And so I was really pleased, in fact, that we were able to get 50 different patients to be willing to, to float. And, and you think that photo helped with that and how you communicated about it? It did. We, you know, part of the issue is we didn't want to set a lot of expectations. In fact, yeah. you know, we, we spent a lot of time at the beginning saying, we don't know if this is going to help you or not. Part of what we're trying to learn is, is this helpful? And, and we encouraged every patient. In fact, I, I administered most of the study myself just because I wanted to be there in case anything went wrong. Mm-hmm. And every patient, you know, as I would explain the study to them and go through the informed consent, trying to make sure they understand the risks, uh, the potential risks that could go into this, I said, you know, listen, all your job is is to inform us whether or not you think this is helpful. We're not trying to, to, to find whether, uh, you know, this is the best next treatment. What we're trying to see is just your honest opinion mm-hmm. of what happened. And so we really encourage participants just to be honest. And if they didn't like it, that was fine, too. We wanted to hear that. We wanted to hear everything. And a lot of our questionnaires actually probed negative things that could happen during a float that we weren't sure if they were happening or not. So we wanted to ask. And we went into everything. We, we asked patients, you know, were you having panic attacks? Were you having uh, flashbacks? Uh, were you having bad memories of early life experiences? Were you having uh, paranoia? Were you having delusions or hallucinations? We went across the whole panoply of psychiatric symptoms that we weren't sure whether or not floating would induce them. And part of this, remember, is this was a safety study. We were interested in whether Mm. this was safe for this population, who does oftentimes have these sorts of symptoms, right? So that was part of the study as well. And and you have to keep that in mind. When when you do a research study, part of your job as a researcher is, is to maintain equipoise not bias the subject in one direction or another. And we were very clear that this was just an exploratory study and we were trying our best not to insert any biases into the experience for the subject. Of course, that makes complete sense to you. For, for me, I, would, I think I would on certain, a certain level assume that, but certainly forget about that. And uh, I love that you just are simply putting it out there to, to find out without any, any sort of bias. And, and who knows what might 
uh, just just the fact that you're there and the excitement and what kind of things might influence it as well. But uh, I really appreciate that that is part of it. And from what came out of that, some of it gives me absolute goosebumps. Every time I read it, I my <laughs> my heart rate goes up. One of them, my probably my favorite one. At times, I felt completely out of my body in a pleasant way. And for feeling detached from the world around you, they wrote, I felt detached from the world in a good way while floating as if I was in a sanctuary. How mm. amazing is that? Isn't that what every float center owner, owner wants somebody to say about their experience? Like, mm. how beautiful is that? Um, and there are all sorts of quotes in the paper and uh, in the uh, addendum, or I'm sorry, what's it, what do you call it? Uh, the supplementary materials. Thank you. That is just beautiful quotes that could fill up any float center's logbook of... of uh, incredible things that you weren't necessarily anticipating, right? I mean, you, again, you went in with curiosity. What is this going to be like? Is this even safe? How many people are going to have a negative or positive reaction to this? And then the things that were coming out of people's mouths was stunning, absolutely stunning. And the fact that this is in a published paper is incredible. <laughs> well, you know, for me, this, this, this had a lot of personal meaning, Dylan, because from much of my graduate school training and, and even postgraduate training, I've been working with these patients in different other uh, uh, modalities, whether it be psychotherapy or working with psychiatrists who have them yeah. on medications. Yeah. And it's been a very frustrating experience for me trying to get these patients better. Uh -huh. You know, I would spend sometimes weeks, if not months, uh, uh, dealing uh, uh, with all the different issues that would come up in their lives and trying to find ways to help them navigate them and, mm. and feel like they're they're at a level where they're at peace again, where they could, uh, uh, quote unquote, feel normal. Mm. And oftentimes these patients just never would get to that point of normality, feeling like they, they were well. Mm -hmm. And what was so striking to me about the 50 patients we studied is a lot of them in the debriefing interview, in the questionnaires that would ask them how they're feeling, would talk about this this wellness, this this peace that they experienced inside the float tank, but also after the float was over. And hearing them talk about that was was really uh, uh, touching to me because I could spend weeks or months with some of my patients. And none of my patients would say those things to me. <laughs> so, you know, I, and, and the other thing to keep in mind here is I didn't do anything. I introduced right. them to the experience, yeah. gave them a few little instructions. But for the, for the hour that they were floating, and keep in mind, all I gave them, this was the whole instruction set for the study, is you have up to an hour to float. Meaning you could get out after five minutes, you could stay in for the full hour, but that was it. It was very simple. You know, we, we, we tried to give them a little bit of coaching and actually the in the supplementary materials, we had a little script where we talk about, you know, just trying to find a place of, of stillness of body and mind, trying not to fall asleep since we wanted to try to keep everybody at least awake. So if there were things that were coming up, they could report on them. Oh, interesting. And, you know, there's a script that we actually use to, to tell people this, but we tried to be very nondescript. We didn't want to, to coach them to think about certain things or do certain things. We wanted to leave it mostly open to them. Mm -hmm. But for that hour that they're floating, I was doing absolutely nothing. And that was what was so fascinating is I would see two different people each day. I would see this patient 
who would come in pre-float looking miserable. And when I say miserable, these were the sorts of patients where you would walk into a room and they didn't have to say a word. You could just tell purely by the composure of their body, the energy in the room, mm -hmm. this person was suffering. Mm -hmm. And then you would walk into that room again after they had finished their float and it was a different person. This person was not the same person I was talking to at the beginning of the float. They were, they were exuberant, some of them. Huh. They were uh, uh, filled with life and prosody in their voice. Their body posture was more upright. They were smiling. They were laughing. There was this freeness to their character and openness to their character. So much so, in fact, that I'm now talking with my colleagues about how floating could be highly beneficial for psychotherapy. Because you could, you could see how difficult it would be to do psychotherapy with the pre-float patient. Mm -hmm. And then in this post-float state, boy, they were great for psychotherapy. <laughs> I didn't have to do anything. Right. In fact, in the paper, there's 29 pages of debriefing interview transcripts where I would just ask a very simple question like, Overall, how was your float today? Open-ended, unbiased. And they would just go off. And some of these patients would go off for a whole page just talking <laughs> about all the experiences. And so it really made me recognize, actually, this is a great method for reducing some people's defensive barriers wow. and, and helping them open up and really access emotions, access uh, how they're feeling. And I thought that was really remarkable. But yeah, I think if you read the debriefing interviews, it, it is the sort of thing that it, 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 it sort of shows you very clearly this was not just a relaxation experience. There was something so much more profound for these patients. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, I want to point out one thing, uh, which is that you said they were told they, they can float for up to 60 minutes. 24 participants, or 48%, said they wanted to stay in longer when they got out. 15 or 30% said it was the perfect amount of time. And 22% said they were ready to get out before the time had elapsed. So about 80% of people said that was the right amount of time or wanted to stay in longer than that. When you just say you have up to 60 minutes and they're saying, I want to be in nothing <laughs> even longer, I mean, it just speaks for itself. That, yeah, I mean, it's it, fascinating. It, it is fascinating because I could tell you one of the scariest parts of floating for somebody who has anxiety is they hear that they have to stay with themselves and nobody else mm -hmm. for an hour. And they look at me and they, you could almost every one of them emphasizes for an hour. Some of these patients you have to recognize have been systematically running away from themselves yeah. their whole life. They've avoided any sense of experience that would put them closer in touch with themselves. In fact, a lot of people with severe anxiety become workaholics because they're constantly trying to distract themselves from the anxiety. Sure. And so that was a big barrier to entry. And I could tell you the patients were very surprised how quickly the time went by and how much they actually enjoyed the experience. A lot of them actually went into it thinking, boy, I'm not going to have any fun. This is going to yeah. be brutal. I'm yeah. getting out after 10 minutes. There's no way I'm staying in. And what was fascinating is 48 out of the 50 patients stayed in for the entire hour. I think wow. one got out a little bit early. And one got out, I think it was 20 minutes. She got out and even then, oh, I think she had some, some cuts on her back. That's right. She was really enjoying the float, but unbeknownst to her, she had some cuts on her back that were causing some stinging sensation, which is totally natural and 
in fact, we tell people, you know, you shouldn't be floating if you have cuts in your body, but she didn't even know they were there. And so, yeah, she wanted to stay in, but it was just the, the, the stinging from the cuts. on. Got it. Uh, another really interesting quote in, in a negative sense was, for the first half, I felt irrationally frightened and in danger. That person still, I think, stayed in the entire time. Uh, the, even that fear wasn't enough to exit the pool, and they felt extreme positive feelings. And, and I think there were some other markers. Uh, even, even having experienced that, during the time in their flow, within the first 20 minutes, by the time they left, had this incredible positive feeling. That's just remarkable. <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually an important point, Dylan. So we looked for adverse experiences. So every time the person would finish their float during the debriefing interview, I would make sure to ask if you know there's anything that uh, uh, they wanted to tell us that went wrong with the experience, things that they didn't like about it. And on top of it, we put together a side effect checklist where we get through all of these different potential negative symptoms. And we also threw in some very positive symptoms just to balance it out. Mm -hmm. But we didn't see in this group of 50 patients any serious adverse events. That's important. We didn't see anybody wow. who, who ran out of the float tank and, and, and uh, their symptoms actually worsened from the experience. And when you look at uh, 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 more subtle adverse events, we only found a single occurrence, and that's the one that you just spoke about, hmm. where we had a, a, a woman who claims that she was actually having a minor panic attack at the beginning of her float. And keep in mind, this is the first time she's ever floated. And I remember very uh, distinctly my first float session feeling very anxious going into it. And so I think that's an important lesson for float center owners. The first float could be anxiety-inducing going into it. And it's usually in that first few minutes of the float where you would expect somebody who has a history of panic attacks to maybe have one. Interesting, okay. And so I think it's important just to, to recognize that it is possible, and this woman did report having one, but what was fascinating about her report is it subsided. And typically when you have a full-blown panic attack, you escape. And the fact that she didn't leave tells me that it wasn't a full-blown okay. panic attack. Okay. But what was really interesting is the experience of uh, sheer bliss that she reported in the second part of the float <laughs> after it had subsided. It, and it was, in, in some ways, a letting go process for her. You could tell that part of that was just letting go. And when it did happen, she was really excited about it. And, and she came out and said, I finally understand why everyone is talking about floating. And she was one of the few participants in our study who had heard of floating beforehand. So that made it even more interesting that she had this panic attack. And the other thing I should say about her is she was unusually relaxed going into the float from my perspective. So in other words, when I was interviewing her before the float, she didn't look like a lot of the other anxious patients who were very jittery, very nervous about it. She was almost too relaxed, I would say. And that was fascinating. I think it, I think it surprised her how, how powerful the experience could be. But other than her, Dylan, we did not see any other adverse events. We didn't have people having flashbacks or traumatic re-experiences uh, for the, the people mm. who had post-traumatic stress. We didn't have other reports of panic attacks. We didn't have people saying that their anxiety was getting worse. 
Um, we didn't have uh, increase in suicidal thinking or depressive thoughts. You know, the, these these Which were all the things could come we were worried about. Yeah, yeah, we were we were really worried about those things, and it, it was it was really striking how across the board the experience was very positive. And in fact, it's made me rethink what's happening because. When you look at the data, Dylan, and we could talk about this a little bit more, it's very rare in a clinical trial to see unanimous positive results. It, it, it doesn't happen normally. And I was convinced going into it, we were going to have at least a handful of patients right. who actually didn't enjoy the experience, who got out early, who may have had some adverse effects. I, I was preparing myself for that, which is why I was the person administering the whole study instead mm. of just my research assistant. And so... It was very shocking to me, actually, how uh, across the board the results were very, very positive. And I just want to point out real quick that you can uh, view the report on our site, uh, get a link to it, and also we have some of the graphics as well, which are just stunning. They're just absolutely incredible of what, what you're describing right here is the lack of negative side effect and the incredible amount of positive effect or positive side effect. Uh, so we were talking about pharmaceuticals earlier. My understanding is that generally the uh, amount of benefit, um, even if it is measurable, it doesn't it doesn't work a hundred percent of the time, right? It's actually very small. I I mean, if I'm maybe I'm wrong on this, but less than a fifty percent. If we're not even over the fifty percent mark, so less than half of the time, it's benefiting the person who's taking it. You had nearly one hundred percent of people experiencing positive affect, having a positive affect from this. Is that correct? It, it was 100%, Dylan. It was 100%. Even okay. the woman who at the beginning of the float you right. know, was, was having some feelings of anxiety and fear still had a very strong reduction from pre to post float in her overall right. level of anxiety. In fact, there's a figure that I, I, I put in there on purpose because I just wanted to show people the raw data. But we used a inventory that's a, a well-validated and highly reliable scale known as the Spielberger State Anxiety Inventory. This is been used in a lot of other clinical trials. It's a 20-item questionnaire. And I show in, I think it's figure 4A, the raw data for all 50 patients and what their state anxiety was pre-float and what their state anxiety was post-float. And as you'll see in that figure, there was not a single patient who didn't show a reduction in anxiety from pre- to post-float. And what's really interesting is figure 4B right next to that where we actually show a comparison group of 30 healthy people who are also floating for their first time. And what's fascinating about that graph, 4B, is when you look at the post-float anxiety for the anxious patients, it's basically at the same level of the pre-float anxiety in the healthy people. So for the first time, these anxious patients are finally getting a taste of what it actually feels like not to be inundated every moment of their life with anxiety. And that was really exciting to me because you always want to know how low are we actually getting their anxiety. And at least from this data, it suggests that it's going to normative levels. And this is, of course, temporary. I think we, we have to emphasize that. This was just measuring things before the float and after the float. And right. we don't know how long the effects last. In fact, we're doing a study now 
where we're pinging people on their smartphones every few hours for a couple days after a float is over to try to see how long the effects actually Interesting. last. Interesting. And I can tell you, I had some of these patients calling me on my office phone a week later, still reporting some of the effects. Really? So, so I think there's definitely a residue that's lasting, but we don't uh-huh. know how long yet. We yeah. need to actually study that systematically. But at least in the short term, at least in this few hour period of time, there's clear benefit that we were detecting. That, that was one of the big takeaways I got from the float conference. Your speech, speech at the float conference was it seems like whatever your anxiety level was, it brought you not, I mean, zero wouldn't be the right word, but it brings you to towards normal. And so if you're extremely anxious, it's going to bring you towards normal. If you're a little anxious, it's going to bring you towards normal. It has this really interesting normalizing effect. That and in fact, you know, this, this was another big finding. It, it kind of got buried in the supplementary materials, but mm-hmm. we did a subgroup analysis. And, you know, you take that 50 patients and you say, of this 50 patients, who were the most severe patients? Who were the ones that had the most impairment in their day-to-day life, the most severe experience of anxiety, the most sensitivity to anxious symptoms? And it turns out a third of the, the, the patients, about 17 of the 50 patients, meet this really severe category. Hmm. And when you look at them and compare their pre-to-post float effects to all the rest of the patients, it turns out the biggest effects we had were in the people who were most severely anxious. And that's important because those are the people who are typically most resistant to other treatments. In fact, those were the people who were taking other medications. Those were the people who were trying different types of psychotherapy and to no avail, it was not helping. And a lot of these patients I should mention had been suffering for most of their life. I had some some patients who didn't remember a time in their life, even Uh. going back to their childhood, where they weren't feeling anxious. And so this is important, is we were were helping the people who were in the most severe category with the largest degree of benefit, and it's usually those people who are most resistant to treatment. So I, I was really excited about that finding in particular. And, and I think you, it's somewhere in there, it says that the resistant part of it is because they want control over their own wellness. Is that right? Or can you elaborate? Um, it's, it's mostly resistant to the treatment. So if we put them on anti-anxiety medication or things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, antidepressants, or even psychotherapies, they're not reporting much benefit from those other interventions. And so in other words, they could go through a whole course of treatment that could last months or even years, and they're not saying their anxieties improved. Yet in this single one-hour float, they showed a tremendous benefit. And that was what's exciting because those are the patients that we need to help. Those are the patients where the currently available therapies aren't making much of an impact. So you said that you're you're pinging them on their phones for for days afterwards, a week afterwards. Do you have any studies going on where there's recurring floating occurring? We're starting to do that. Those those are kind of the clinical trials I was telling you about earlier. You know, ultimately, you know this this initial study just shows a short term effect that we're not sure how long it lasts. But when you talk to other doctors and other psychiatrists and psychologists. What they're really interested in is finding treatments that transcend the short term, that actually could help Mm -hmm. people for weeks or months or years and hopefully for the rest of their life. 
And so you really need to do those longer-term studies where you have people floating repeatedly, and those are where the longer-term clinical trials come in. And we're getting ready to, to ramp those sorts of studies up, but it just takes a lot more effort to do those studies because you're having someone come in, say, for a dozen floats, wow. and you want to do that in, say, over 100 people. That's a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's going to be, be a busy float center you're running there. Uh, now, I, I know this might not be necessarily what was in the report. Uh, I know Saib has something to do with this. Uh, Pan Lin had something to do with this. But the what's going on in the brain, it seems like, and, and I know we talked about the default mode network last time you were on, uh, which is very exciting. But um, do are we getting any um, readings of, of our floaters before and after with this particular study? And can you talk about that? What are we seeing? Well... We're, we're, we're starting to, in uh, follow-up studies with this particular cohort of 50 patients, we've brought them in for additional floats and done additional studies with them. Okay. And we are measuring a lot of things during the float. So, for example, we're measuring things like blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, um, brain waves using EEG. And eventually, we're going to also do some brain imaging using MRI, fMRI. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Those results are all kind of being analyzed and processed now, so I can't get into the, the nitty-gritty, but I, I promise oh, you on. as soon as we, we have our next paper out uh, in yeah. press, we could, we could talk some more about those data. And, and, do. and, and you know, the, the brain imaging results, I think, are important because one of the fascinating things that we did in the brain imaging study is we compared uh, floating to a very comfortable, active condition which involves laying down in a zero gravity chair mm-hmm. and we were seeing major differences between floating versus uh, a zero gravity chair and that that's important because it suggests that this is more than just simple relaxation this right. is more than just finding a comfortable quiet spot and laying down for an hour where the the, the float environment is obviously impacting the brain in a very different way than a typical sort of simple relaxation experience. And that means a lot to us as float center owners. When somebody says, I'll just put a bag of salt, I've up some salt in my bathtub, or I'll just kick back and relax, we instinctively know, and because we've seen so many customers, we know that there's something different to the float tank. But uh, to actually be able to see that in a study is very exciting. We, we know there's a difference. Um, Replicating this going forward, I mean, we, we've talked about it a little bit. Um, is it the scale that needs to get bigger, or is it um, branching out to the re- uh, again recurring floats, or is it different medical conditions? What are what are the important routes to go from here for further study? And I know you've talked about it a little already, but well, I think there's a a whole slew of possibilities because basically what this first study showed is, I would say three very important uh, conclusions. One is, at least in this first float session, it seems to be safe. Now, I I use the word seems there because until we do this in hundreds or Mm -hmm. thousands of people, Mm -hmm. we're never going to know what the base rate of adverse events is. If you have an adverse event that, say, happens in less than 1% of people, that means you're going to have to test at least 100 or more people to see that occur. So 
We don't know what the whole range of adverse effects are, but at least in this cohort of 50 patients on their first float session, we weren't seeing very many adverse events. In fact, it was across the board mostly positive effects. So it seems to be safe. The second conclusion is that it's tolerable. In other words, patients with anxiety who may, uh, when you try to explain what this is, give you a look like there's no way I could handle that for an hour. Right. It turns out all of them were handling it for an hour, and most of them, in fact, wanted to do it even longer. So it is tolerable. And then the final thing, which is really the most important discovery, is we were seeing a clinical effect. We were seeing reductions in anxiety. We were seeing reductions in symptoms of depression. And the reason that's important is 46 out of the 50 patients also had comorbid unipolar major depression. And it turns out when you have comorbid anxiety and depression, and these conditions oftentimes do go hand in hand, it becomes even harder to treat you. You're more resistant to the currently available therapies. Okay. So 46 out of our 50 patients also had depression. Okay. Wow. Okay. And so not only were we reducing symptoms of anxiety, but I think one of the biggest effects we were seeing is we were improving people's mood. And people were reporting this tremendous degree of serenity, peacefulness, serenity, con yes. contentedness. And that's very unusual because these are the sorts of patients that are highly irritable, that are always kind of grumpy and in a bad mood. And the fact that they're reporting serenity is so yeah. amazing to me as wow. a clinician because normally you could give them some of the best uh, 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 antidepressant medication around, and they're saying this doesn't help me at all. Wow. And they're recognizing that it's helping them too. It's not just that they're marking this unconsciously. They see it in themselves that they're happier or, or it, feeling the serenity. It, in fact, this was all done by their own report. And, and, yeah. and once again, we coach them on, on trying to recognize that this is their opportunity to be honest with us. We didn't want to hear that necessarily this was making them better. We just wanted the truth. And so we, we spend a lot of time, even when we hand them the questionnaires, saying to them, you know, take your time on these. There's no rush. And we just want you to be as honest and forthcoming as possible. We just want to learn from you. That's all. I know you, you culled the field a little bit of who was allowed in the study, but it seems like you, not to say stack the deck against your favor, but you made it potentially more difficult for yourself by having both anxiety and depression in there. Why did you choose to go forward with that? Where'd that confidence come from? You know, for me, it came from the clinical perspective, which is, you know, in in our field, we try to diagnose people with a name. We give them a condition, right? But what I've found and what a lot of other people have found in my field is these diagnoses are unsatisfactory. There's, there's rarely ever a single patient that perfectly fits into just one category. And this idea of comorbidity, where you could have multiple diagnoses, is actually more the rule than the exception. Hmm. And so hmm. I wanted to go after the average patient. And the average patient is going to have more than one diagnosis. Okay. That's just the typical sort of patient. And, and for me, I think it was important. Is We wanted this to be as realistic and pragmatic as possible. So we allowed people who were taking medications. We allowed people who had all the different types of anxiety disorders. We didn't distinguish, so they could have a generalized anxiety disorder. They could have social anxiety disorder. They could have panic disorder. They could have agoraphobia. We even actually recruited 
a, a, a decent group of patients who had post-traumatic stress disorder. So we kind of uh, sampled the whole range of different types of conditions, but the ultimate goal was to figure out whether it helped their anxiety, irrespective of what may be causing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, with all the positivity that's coming out of it, it might have actually been you that had had told me about this, which is the idea that if something's good for everything, uh, people tune out. It's probably too good to be true. With all the the positive feedback feedback that's come back from this, do you have any concerns about people kind of blocking it out? Too good to be true. Um, do you think that the sample, as the sample size gets larger, that it will there will be some measurable negative? Uh, effects as well? I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? It's hard to say, you know, whenever you have a a first study of its kind, um, and there, the truth is there really has never been another publication with anxiety disorders looking at the short-term effects. There is a great, uh, a paper by the Swedish group, um, uh, Christopher Johnson and, uh, Annette Kilgren, where they looked at the long-term effects in patients who have generalized anxiety. So just one of those conditions I spoke about. But they didn't actually measure the short-term effects. They just looked at, you know, what happened after floating 12 times, and then they followed them up for six months and showed that some of the anxiety-reducing effects actually were able to sustain a half year later. But they never looked at just a single float saying, you know, what happened from pre to post. Yeah. And so this was the first study of its kind. And, and what was uh, fascinating to me is it didn't matter what your diagnosis was. It didn't matter what the particular condition was that was causing your anxiety. Mm. It seemed to help. And the more severe your anxiety, the larger the reduction that we found post-flow. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, that's very positive. And you're right. The, the, there's going to be a healthy degree of skepticism in a single open-label trial. Hmm. And that's why you start here. You start here saying, this is what we found. Now let's do something more rigorous. Let's add in some control conditions. Let's add in some active conditions where we know there's a treatment that has already proven its effectiveness above and beyond placebo. And as you start layering this, and as you start replicating that initial finding, I think you're going to start seeing people uh, come on board who are skeptical. But I think the skepticism is healthy. You want to be skeptical. But, you know, for me, I just wanted to present the data as it was. And, mm. and as you'll see, it's a very long paper. But part of the reason I, it's so long is I didn't want to hide anything. I just presented all of it. In fact, one of the things about PLOS One is they require you to submit your raw data. Part of their mission is they want not only to have science be open access, but they want to show that science is completely open, period. There's (laughs) nothing that you have to hide. So you could actually (laughs) go to my paper and click a link and download all of the data and reanalyze it yourself. And so that's part of the idea here is we just wanted to present what we found. And this was the report of the 50 patients. How cool is that? So uh, it kind, of, kind of on the same theme of that is we had Tom Fine on uh, somewhat recently, and I was wonderful having Tom, Tom on for the research information, and his stories were fantastic. Uh, always, always fun to speak with him. One thing I, I pried on, uh, pried at him, tried to get out of him, was what can we say is true? When I'm talking to somebody who's going in for a float for the first time, based on uh, the research that he was part of, what can we say is true? And remarkably on almost every turn, every time I went at a different angle, he'd say, 
you can't say it's true basically because the sample size was too small or you know there are all these all these potentials so you know you can't say it as fact you can't necessarily say it's true and and he's changed the way that i communicate i've said now it's you know there there has been a study that showed or a small study you know there are indicators in this direction as opposed to saying something is true i'm i'm I have the feeling I'm not going to get very far with you on this one as well. Would you agree with Tom on these findings? Are, are simply it's just that that it's indicating these things, uh, or this study? You know, this person had this effect. How do you, do you get where I'm getting at with this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and and this this always comes down to you know who was your sample, how big was your sample, and how well does that sample characterize the sorts of patients that might be using uh, this intervention, right? And so, you know, truth is, is always a work in progress in mm. science. In fact, sure. very, very few scientists would ever say they know the truth. In fact, they're in constant search of it, but rarely do you ever get a truth. And by truth, you're talking about some equation, right? Some mathematical formula where you know X plus Y is going to equal Z, right? And so it's very hard to ever get down to the, the truth, you know, whatever that may mean, um, in things like therapy or treatments for mental illness. Because the truth is we're still trying to learn the truth of what is a mental illness, what causes a mental illness. And there's so many things we don't even understand yet. And so I think the word truth is, is kind of a, a hard word for any scientist to ever use, uh, use in, a, in a literal way. Yeah. What I would say, though, is this study does show very promising effects for people who suffer from anxiety. And it doesn't matter the condition. And, mm -hmm. and I think it's more the promise that I would focus on rather than whether this is true or not true. Cool. I think that's going to be determined over the course of decades of research. Interesting. But at least we have some promising effects that this is helpful. Mm -hmm. All right. Amy, do you have any questions you want to ask Justin while he's on? Yeah, sure. You know, you were talking about how many of the people in this study have severe anxiety. And as a float center, uh, when we're talking to the general public, those people might be very difficult or might be uh, too anxious to even come in and try. What are some things that we can do as float centers to, to ease the way for them or to make this more attractive, make this experience of flotation more attractive to them? What can we do to be helpful? Yeah, this is an important part of the study, and I, I spend a lot of time talking about this, both in the methods section in terms of how we built our, our float pool and how we introduced people to the experience, but also in the discussion as well. And what I could say is the key word here is control. You want to give the patient complete control over the experience. And we did that in several different ways. I think the most important way that we did that is with the open pool design. Anytime a patient is going into an enclosed chamber, the feeling of claustrophobia and the inherent loss of control that comes with that feeling is going to dominate. And it doesn't even matter if their claustrophobia is not a, a big part of their condition they're still going to feel that loss of control. And I remember, you know, the first time I, I Googled the word float tank, a lot of the, the tanks that are enclosed are very small. They, some of them look like boxes or pods, 
and I could tell you that scares the crap out of these patients. And that's a huge barrier to entry. And the truth is, after you float for a, a lot of uh, uh, times and you have enough practice, it doesn't matter what float tank you're in, right? But that first float, it's critical. It's so critical because it changes their brain state, right? If they're going into an enclosed environment where they feel claustrophobic, where they feel like they're not in control anymore, they're not going to enter into those relaxed states that we were achieving in this first study. And so I think the open pool design is one of the first things you could do to give them control because then they clearly see I could get in and out whenever I want. There's nothing holding me back here. The second thing we did is we gave them control over the lights. A lot of float tanks don't even have lights. I'm always shocked by this. And I could tell you people with anxiety, they may not want to have the lights off in the first float. In fact, of this group of 50 patients, half of them floated with the lights on, half of them floated with the lights off. And we left it up to them. We didn't dictate that they had to sh shut the lights off. Although and an that interesting was a note, those who left it off had higher... Uh marked higher on happiness, serenity, all, all the positive effects. I found that interesting. It, it was continue. interesting because we did a subgroup analysis where we compared the lights off versus the lights on uh, 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 patients. And what we found was interesting. So you're right. So one of the effects was the people who had the lights off tended to report higher levels of serenity and less negative mood. But What's interesting is when you look at our primary outcome measure, which was state anxiety on the Spielberger state anxiety, there was no difference between the conditions. In other words, the reduction in anxiety was equal whether you had the lights on versus okay. off. Hmm. I guess it hmm. depends on how you look at the data. And so, and so that's important because you could yeah. tell the patients that, listen, you know, you don't have to shut the lights off. And in fact, if, if you're here just to relax and feel less anxious, keep them on. Don't, awesome. No problem. And, so good. and one of the things we also did is, is it's not just uh, uh, important to give them control over the lights, but they need to be able to find the light switch in times when they need it. So, for example, if they're in the dark and they're floating, and suddenly they get this overwhelming sense of anxiety, they need to be able to turn that light on immediately, right? And what we had to create to do this was an infrared, uh, sorry, an infrared uh, wave detection system that Colin Stanwell Smith from FloatAway was able to produce for us. So this is really neat. So all you have to do, and remember we have circular pools, is you could be floating anywhere in the pool and you just raise your hand in the air and it turns the lights on and off. So they had complete control over the lights if they had it off, and they could always turn it on no matter where they were floating. And, and you, you bring cool. this up in the considerations for replication of, like, will this work in other float centers necessarily? And I think from a float center owner perspective, if, if we don't have these capabilities, to me, it puts that much more on us as the people giving introductions to float to make sure that people are comfortable getting into this space. I do have a float tank that doesn't have a light inside of it. We don't necessarily encourage first-time floaters to get in there unless they're absolutely stoked to get into the, the real deal and just close the lid and be in the dark. But the more that you can make them feel comfortable in this space, in the environment, educated on where that light switch actually is, or that you don't have to turn the light off in the room, it's light sealed when you close the lid, whatever it is to just bring any potential anxiety or questions that might pop up in the float tank, I think that's where we, if, if your center is already there and you can't have Colin install the infrared uh, light switch on, then it's on you bringing people into that space. Yep, absolutely. And this, 
this is an important uh, point that you bring up, Dylan. The, you know, as a scientist, what, what is most important to the whole methodology of science is replication, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be able to say that if you set up an experiment with the following conditions, you should be able to find the same effects no matter how many times you repeat it. Mm-hmm. And I put a note in the discussion, and I thought a lot about this because I think it's important that we replicate these findings. But I said, I don't know yet whether this is going to replicate in other float centers. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One could be that a lot of float centers don't have open pool or open tanks. Mm-hmm. And that's just a limitation because those are more expensive. There's, there's a lot more uh, uh, construction and a lot more resources that go into building those and calibrating those. Temperature, humidity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I don't know if, 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 it, if these anxious, same anxious patients went into an enclosed chamber, whether we would see the same effects. But there's other variables too. So this all took place in a very professional medical setting where they had myself, who's a trained uh, clinical psychologist, and we also had another medical doctor who was running the study with me there for the patient, monitoring them with an intercom system the entire hour so they knew that if they ever had any issues, all they had to do is talk to us. And that created a level of safety for these patients that may be hard to replicate in other places, right? They knew they were being monitored. They knew they had professional medical help at a snap of their own finger, and that's going to put them into a different space than if they're in this new center where nobody's trained medically and they're in an enclosed chamber. So I don't know what that is going to do with this specific target population, but what it means is it means we need to now replicate that study using a typical float center, right? Oh, interesting. Mm. And, and so I think that's really the point here is until we could actually do that replication study, just tread cautiously because we mm-hmm. don't actually know how somebody with severe anxiety is going to fare in a more traditional recreational center. That, that's another good point to my earlier question of, you know, what can we say? Well, this is true in this very specific environment that we call a float tank as well, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be true in our float tanks or our float center. I think yeah, that's very important, and, and I'm not saying it's not going to be true, right. but until yeah. we do that replication study, we just have to tread cautiously. This study is um, focusing on people with anxiety, and that, that's your background as a researcher as well, um, and it sounds like you're going to scale that this specific study up. But are you looking to branch out into researching other um, mental disorders or any, any other sort of issues? I mean, I imagine some of this, some of it will come in ancillarily, like the dep- folks with the anxiety and depression that were in your study. But are you are you planning to specifically focus on anything outside of anxiety in the future? We are. You know, th- I think there's a lot of low hanging fruits when it comes to floating and. Most of that is a byproduct of the fact there just hasn't been a lot of research. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is we're very interested in several other disorders. Um, Dr. Saib Khalsa, who I think would be a great guest for this show, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, this next study that he's going to be directing. It's the first ever inpatient float study. So these are... Um, in patients who have a condition known as anorexia nervosa, it's an eating disorder, and essentially uh, most of these are females and young females for that, and they're uh, starving themselves because just the the sheer thought of eating food creates so much anxiety. Mm. 
And it's oftentimes due to a, a range of other uh, issues, including body image disturbances, where they feel like they're actually fat. Whereas when you look at them objectively, they're extremely skinny. And every time they eat food, they think they're going to be gaining weight. And there's a lot of uh, body image disturbance in this population. But keep in mind, the name of this condition is anorexia nervosa. The nervosa piece is the anxiety. These patients mm. oftentimes have comorbid anxiety. And so Dr. Kalsa is going to be working with these uh, uh, fem mostly female patients who are on the inpatient unit of the hospital next to uh, Laureate Institute for Brain Research. This is actually on the top floor of our building. These women are living there and spending several weeks or months trying to get themselves healthy, trying to refeed and get their body weight back up to normal levels. And he's going to be floating them repeatedly over the course of a month and try to track not just how this reduces their anxiety, but whether it also helps them with eating more, gaining weight, improving their body image. There's so many interesting questions that we're going to learn from this inpatient study. And the part that really resonates the most with me is anorexia nervosa has the highest fatality rate of all mental illness. So in other words, huh. if these women don't get better, and it turns out there's not very many treatments that work for anorexia nervosa, some of them are going to die. So this study could actually show whether floating could save someone's life, and that's exciting. That so, that's, so that's going to be one of the studies we're going to be doing. I'm also very interested in uh, the opiate crisis that we're having in this country. And, so glad you, bring that up. you know, one of the first anecdotes I ever heard of floating, and this is just because I'm a huge Beatles fanatic, but apparently John Lennon overcame his heroin addiction in the late 70s by buying his own float tank. And I think there's actually some interesting anecdotal data. Nothing's ever been studied in this to suggest that floating could reduce withdrawal symptoms. And so one of the studies I'm hoping to launch this year is a study in acute opiate users who are trying to quit the drug. Wow. Wow. How exciting. Crazy. <laughs> Although the, the one thing I could say I'm a little bit worried about with that study is the water. <laughs> mm. Because one of the main withdrawal symptoms is going to be diarrhea or vomiting. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so well. those are the things we're going to have to figure out before we launch the study. Otherwise, it's going to become very expensive and Epsom salt intensive. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, float fuel is where you want to know. Justin, is there anything you want to leave our audience with before we, we sign off here? You know, I think for me, um, the most important thing is that float centers tread cautiously. These are the first data that we have studying the short-term effects in people with anxiety and depression. We need to replicate this. Um, we need to do larger scale trials with better control conditions. And those will happen. We actually have several of them already completed and several more on the way. And so just be patient. You know, Don't oversell these initial findings. I think they are very powerful and they are very positive. But there's a lot more work we have to do. And, and I would say just, you know, uh, understand when you're talking to patients, 
you shouldn't be promising them any miracle cures. Mm -hmm. Just let them go into the experience and see what it's like. And if, if they're coming to your center because they want to try to get themselves better, you know, feel free to be part of that process, but don't make any promises. Even though the results are promising. That's right. That's, <laughs> and that's, that's an important distinction, right? That's a very right. important distinction. <laughs> Well, I do want to just point out one more time that the um, if you go to artofthefloat.com on the on the show page, we do have the supplementary materials that Justin mentioned. You can access them through. Um, oh gosh, uh, can you pronounce it again? The the plus Pl one website. Pl yep. Thank you. Uh, you can get it through there, but he has it in a PDF file where it's just all there. Right after the study, you can get to every single description and just read through them all. It's it's incredible. <laughs> It's just incredible. Uh, it, again, it just seems like any float centers uh, book of, of people's quotes, what they would write in there. It's really phenomenal. Uh, so you can go there and check that out. Um, also, if you're interested in or have somebody who might be interested in actually working at Liber, again, uh, we'll have a link for that as well. And you can read about the job qualifications and all of that. Uh, Dr. Justin Feinstein of the Laureate Institute for Brain Research, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute treat and an honor, and thank you for what you're doing. It means uh, truly the world to us as, as we talk with the people who, that we bring into our float centers and, and have, um, honestly, a, a, a foot to stand on, it seems like, right now. <laughs> it's really exciting. So thank you so much. Before we go, I do... This is a big shocker, but give a shout out to Float Away, uh, who, who <laughs> <laughs> makes the float around float tanks in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. Uh, there's a reason that Justin uh, has, has gone with Float Away because, uh, well, Colin is able to build incredible float tanks and systems as well. And he's able to do the incredible things like no light switches. You can turn the lights on and off. Basically, if you think of it, Colin will make a way to make it happen, which is phenomenal. And what it's led to is a slew of different styles of float tanks from the smaller float tank that I have, the Tranquility float tank with buttons to open and close it, lights in the ceiling, to the incredible float around where I've had the best float of my life. That was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, that That's right. You, you were out well. here. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, float cabins as well. And um, even where, where it's allowed, you can float two people in, in their float tanks as well. So uh, floataway.com is where you want to check it out. And hey, if it's good enough for Justin, good enough for me. <laughs> Uh, again, floataway.com. In closing, thanks to everybody supporting us on Patreon. Oh my gosh, you guys. Thank you so much. I'll just leave it at that. We're available for consulting. If you want some help opening your business or refining your business, uh, we are available. Amy, Brian, myself, and Gloria are an amazing team, and we want to help you open successfully. Uh, also, thanks to everybody who's bookmarking our Amazon link. You can find that on the right side of artofthefloat.com. Anytime you shop, it sends a few ducats our way and just, again, helps a little, put a little wind in our sails. If you are about to open, if you're celebrating a float anniversary of opening your business, if you have any wins or losses, lessons that you've learned, leave a voicemail on our website. It's the gold bar on the left side of the screen. We want to hear from you. We want to play that for our listeners. We want this to be the community podcast, and we want that means we want your voices to be shared on here as well. And uh, in closing, just thanks to Kim for taking our show notes. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. Remember, there's an infinite amount to find in the presence of nothing, so spend some time there. We'll see you next week. Bye.